Well, there's about five games left in this Premier League season, and we've got a title race. We've got a top four race. We certainly have a relegation battle. Ross McMoney's beloved Chelsea, not really a part of any of those. My beloved Leicester City, certainly not a part of any of those. But we're going to talk about them anyway on this week's Soccer and Snow and Smoke. I'm Andrew Houghton. Joining me, as previously mentioned, Ross McMoney's, who joined us around the holiday season for a discussion about the club scene in Missoula, what he was doing with Missoula Strikers. Ross, what have you been up to since then? Well, man, thanks for having me back. I really appreciate it. Yeah, when was that? It was, I know there was snow on the ground and it was cold. I think December, right before, right before we went into the holiday season, because I just wanted to to get something out. Thank you for doing that, by the way, right around Christmas time there. Yeah, great. Well, yeah, I mean, for me, a lot has changed. I actually stepped down from my role with Missoula Strikers. I was just, you know, I I was, there's a lot of reasons that go into it, but ultimately I was investing so much time and effort and financials into my coaching development. So I I really wanted to focus on that pathway and and not worry so much about the whole overarching operation of running a club. So I really just want to throw myself into coaching, but I'm really excited for the club's future and, and they're, they're looking to hire someone and bring someone new in and, you know, freshen things up a little bit. So, Well, big changes there, man. Good luck, of course, going forward, as you say, getting more into the, the coaching part of it and, and we'll see what's next for you. We're excited to see what's next for you. But thanks again for coming in. The last time we talked, you know, you mentioned you were you were a big Premier League fan. I mean, aside from the coaching and your work with strikers, you were watching a ton of soccer. And I thought, you know, that sounds like somebody we should just have in to talk about the season. And now we're coming down to the end of it. So I wanted to have you in to sort of analyze this Premier League, maybe a little bit of Champions League. Where do you want to start? Yeah, man, there's so much to talk about. huh? And you mentioned Chelsea, my beloved Chelsea. I don't have much to look forward to now with the running. That's um, right. You know, they got knocked out of the Champions League with Madrid. What a series of games that was. Um, Chelsea looked like they were going to do it. And then, you know, Rodrigo and Benzema pop up with the, the goals to knock us out. And that was it. Um, but I'm proud of them pushing through you know no one no one expected Chelsea to come back from that first leg having lost 3-1 and I I went to the Thomas Marbar and I was the only one there pretty much watching it because everyone thought that was it it was over so I was excited that they at least gave it a good go but yeah yeah really impressive from Chelsea I mean that's one of the things that I like to see where you're talking about regardless whatever sport I mean the NBA NFL when when you're defending a title as Chelsea were in the Champions League this year if you're going out, I really want to see somebody have to like really take your head off, you know, yeah. like fight to the end there. And and Chelsea certainly did that. And they're sitting pretty in third place now, not contending for the title, but looks like uh, pretty nailed on spot for the Champions League coming back into next year now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The Champions League, you know, anyone that watches the Premier League knows that that those top four places are are gold dust. You want, you really want to get in there. There's big financials involved. It attracts the best players. All the best players in the world want to play in the Champions League. So, I think Chelsea are sitting pretty in third. I don't think any anything's really going to change there. So, you know, it's what's going to happen with the top two and and then fourth place. Yeah, and we'll, we'll get to that in a second, but your thoughts on what Chelsea have done this year, I mean, sort of solidifying the Thomas Tuchel project this year, I mean, just giving him a little bit more time to work with the team, figuring out what works and what doesn't, what have you seen from them this year? I've been a little 
underwhelmed. Okay. Because, you know, the first five games of the season, Lukaku comes in and you're like, yes, this is the missing piece. This is what we needed. And then, you know, he goes and makes that interview about how he loved Inter Milan and didn't really want to leave. And, and that just kind of blew the whole thing up. And he hasn't really played much since. So... As a Chelsea fan, as just a soccer lover, I really wanted to see Lukaku succeed coming back to the Premier League. He's never really set it alight, but he showed so much promise. And then what he did in Italy, you were like, oh yes, now it's time. And it clearly was not time. So a little disappointed, but still happy, happy they got that Champions League and ready to see what's next. The saga of Romelu Lukaku continues. He really was sort of the piece that looked like it would make it for Chelsea because mm-hmm. Chelsea have a ton of creative players in that team with, with Kai Havertz and players like Mason Mount, Hakim Ziyech, Christian Pulisic. Yeah. And they brought in Timo Werner to sort of be the finisher, the, the striker, yeah, and, and he's he had issues. And then you thought Lukaku would be that piece, and, and he hasn't exactly been yeah. it. So... If you got points for hitting the post, Chelsea, right. would, be, Chelsea would be up there and, and Werner would be top scorer. I'm kind of dodging the, the ultimate, you know, elephant in the room that like Russian owner and everything that's happened there. That's Chelsea are in turmoil now and, and that's kind of why we've plateaued and it's a bit of a stalemate and no one really knows what's coming next. But if we can figure that out and, and get to the bottom of it quickly, then we'll remain in a good place. But... Yeah, and what Ross is sort of alluding to there is Roman Abramovich, who's owned Chelsea since the early 2000s, and sort of his money turned them into one of the dominant teams in the 2000s and 2010s in the Premier League. Of course, as a Russian oligarch with very close ties to Vladimir Putin and um, sort of the Russian elite, and that has forced the Premier League's hand on this, and Chelsea have not been able to uh, they won't be able to buy players this summer unless the team is sold. And, you know, the sale is in progress right now, but a buyer has not been determined. Chelsea haven't been able to sell tickets to games, right? Yeah. Uh, it, it's really a, a difficult situation, I think, in everybody's best interest for that sale to be completed as soon as possible so that Chelsea can sort of do the business that, all, that a football team does yeah. uh, and, and buy and sell players and, and do other things that are not just sort of bare bones of, of paying players and playing staff, which is essentially the only thing they're allowed to do right now aside from play the games. Yeah, and everyone's jumping on the bandwagon. The first thing that came out was uh, Conor McGregor wanted to buy it. And now the, the most recent one is Lewis Hamilton and Serena Williams are going in as a partnership. And Lewis Hamilton is an Arsenal fan. So it was like, you know, it was, he was dealing with some difficult questions with, from the media and fan, fan base and stuff. But it's, yeah, it's interesting to see how it's going to get resolved. It really speaks to, I mean, that's one of the most valuable sports properties in the world. And properties like this do not come up for yeah. sale very often, if at all, especially through sort of outside means like this, as aside from just the, the owner wanting to sell, I'm not surprised that we have, you know, sort of a who's who of, mm-hmm. of famous people and rich people in the mix for that. So it'll be interesting to see how that pans out. But Chelsea, like you said, sort of irrelevant to the run into this Premier League season because it does look like they're going to finish third and wrap up that Champions League spot for next year. But a little ways ahead of them, we have, I think, one of the best title races that I've seen in a while. What have you thought of Man City and Liverpool this year? I mean, as a fan of any other club, you just have to be 
envious and hold your hands up and be like, oh, what are we going to do? It's Man City and it's Liverpool. You just, when you, whenever you face those two teams, you expect to lose. They are so good. Some of the best two Premier League teams, style of play, just everything, you name it. These are some of the best two teams at it that, that I've ever seen. Um, and I've, trust me, I watch a lot of soccer um, and it's just mind blowing. And, you know, I, I, you can't call it. They have, what, five games left and I expect they're not going to drop any points. They're going to win. And both teams are just hoping one of them slips up. But I just can't see it. That's right. Man City and Liverpool both with five games left. They don't play each other again in the league. They still could play each other in the Champions League final, which would be sort of another great twist into that rivalry as they're finishing up the Premier League race. Uh, with five games left, Man City on 80 points, Liverpool on 79. So if Man City does win out, they will be the champions. I agree with everything you said. It really is what sort of illustrates the point so clearly for me. Is the the last game that they played each other was the the two two in the Premier League, and that was sort of that was sort of the chance. I mean, that was sort of you're you're playing each other. You don't think either team's going to drop any points against anybody else the rest of the year. That game was really all to play for, and that game was just. I mean, it really puts on display the quality, the tactical ideas that these teams are more well-equipped to play than anybody else in the world. It was it was a, a sensational game, and it really is just on a different level than I think almost any other team in the world can reach right now. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think that was kind of a decider, and everyone felt it at the time. I think Liverpool probably would have been most upset with the tie um, had they win it, won it. I thought they would have probably went into the rest of it feeling very confident like we've got this we can win out just as Man City are we tied yeah fine but we're confident we can win out so and they've got most points but I think uh, the Premier League and, and soccer in Europe gets a bit of criticism from American sports fans because there's no like playoffs but for me this is exciting it's a marathon it's not a sprint like if Man City dropped a single point on the first five games of the season, it can really affect this title race right now, you know, months down the line. So I love it. Well, that's right. And now you have essentially five games and it is it is playoffs or it's a playoff race situation yeah. where you cannot lose a game. You cannot drop any points because the other team is putting such pressure on you. Talking about both of these teams, I mean, what's your your read of how they've reached the level that they have this year and sort of in past years, but how have they built that over the years? I mean, just the, you know, you look at both Pep and Klopp, some of the best two managers in the world, um, you know, and I'm a coach instructor with the coaches across Montana, and we, we were having this conversation last night, funny enough. We were talking about how if you have a, cons a philosophy and you're consistent with your message and you're, you know, you're drilling in your principles on a daily basis, like that consistency over time builds up and it, and it creates a really positive, strong identity and culture. And that's what makes teams successful. You know, you think about coaches in America like John Wooden or Phil Jackson, those guys are the same. It's all about their philosophy and principles and their consistency within that message. 
Well, I think that's absolutely right. And both those teams have the money to put in uh, those, those principles yeah. to, to allow those managers to build their vision. And, and when it works and when you have the manager with the vision and the resources to build that vision and sort of the backroom staff to identify players for that vision and you have the players bought in, it really is something special. I, watch these teams if you can. They're both still in the Champions League in the in the semifinals, and we'll talk about that a little bit. But I just thought that when they played each other in the Premier League um, a couple weeks ago, it was just one of the best games that I've ever seen because no other team in the world can play their game against these teams. Chelsea, Arsenal, Tottenham, the other the other best teams in the Premier League. They can't build from the back against the pressure of these yeah. teams. They can't have anything going in midfield against these teams. Liverpool and Man City are the only two teams that can play the way they want to against each other. So you have two teams trying to build from the back, two teams trying to hold possession against two teams trying to press high. And the level of skill that that requires from the players on the field in every situation. I mean, watching that game, there's no easy back pass there's no easy passing it around the back right every touch has to be good and because they have the best players in the world every touch was good and every touch had the chance to move their team forward or to push the other team back to change the game and it was just really high level intense soccer and I don't know that there's much else to say about this race except that Man City has the advantage right now and it doesn't look like like either team is going to drop points and it, it might just be Man City on top yeah, talking about that, you you know, swinging it around the back and 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 trying to play a certain way, it just reminded me of the incident when Edison received that back pass and almost gave up a goal. Like it's it, it's fractions in the differences between one of these two teams winning the league. Not quite as as impactful, but but maybe I mean for a lot of these teams we still have a lot of races for the European places here. If Arsenal do hold on to fourth, how big of a statement is that for sort of the, the Mikel Arteta experiment there? Um, does does that represent a step forward for you, for Arteta at Arsenal? Absolutely, yeah. It, it's kind of similar to the Man U thing. They're in a, in a weird, they've been in a weird transition, but Arteta's appointment was a, a really positive one, I think. Obviously, he's a coach that worked under Pep, um, so he's been mentored by the, him and he's ki- he kind of has a very similar philosophy and wants to play a certain way. So I'm, I'm glad they've stuck with him. When things were tough, they were calling for his head. But as I mentioned before, I'm, I'm a Glasgow Rangers fan. I grew up and Arteta was a Rangers player. So I am behind Arteta and I'm, you know, I'm not a Chel- I'm not an Arsenal fan. I'm a Chelsea fan, but I just love soccer. I appreciate it. And, I, and Arteta is certainly someone... Even though he's the manager of Arsenal, I'm rooting for him. It looks like for that fourth spot, so it's Man City in first, Liverpool in second. They're fighting for the title. Chelsea looks nailed on for third. Arsenal sitting in fourth right now with 60 points. Tottenham in fifth with 58 points. I don't think Man United is in that race for... Oh, no. I, I think they've dropped out of it recently. Yeah. Um, so it looks like they're going for Europa League. Do, do you have a a handicapped favorite in that race for fourth between Arsenal and Tottenham. And that's a hugely valuable place because the difference between the Champions League revenues and the Europa League revenues is is so large. Um, very much like the Man City-Liverpool game, I believe Arsenal and Tottenham still have to play. So again, it may come down to that head-to-head. But again, I, I really think that 
you know, Tottenham have been hit or miss. They've had their ups and downs this year. And Arsenal have started in this late period of the season, have started to show some consistency. So I think they are just going to nick it at the end. They do play each other still on May 12th, which is uh, one of the the biggest games remaining in the Premier League schedule. It's really interesting. Yeah, I think Arsenal has been a little bit under the radar this season. You know, you had Man City, Liverpool taking up a lot of the headlines. You have Chelsea, of course, as the defending Champions League winner. You had whatever's going on at, at Man United. You had sort of West Ham having a good season. Tottenham have Son and Kane, so there's going to be a lot of attention on them always. Arsenal lost their their best or most famous player, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, to, to Barcelona. But they've just been steady. I think they, they deserve the fourth spot that they're sitting in right now. And I think if they do close it out, nobody could say that they, they don't deserve it. Yeah, you know, one thing I think that I really appreciate about Arteta and Arsenal is that they've used their youth very well. You know, and I wish a lot of these Premier League clubs would rely on their youth academy a lot more than they do. Chelsea being one of the biggest. Chelsea sends so many young players out on loan. They get a lot of criticism for it. And then they buy players like Lukaku. We saw Tammy Abraham, who was a young Chelsea product, to Roma, brought Lukaku in to score the goals. And Tammy Abraham was scoring more goals than Lukaku. I don't understand why teams don't just rely on their youth and give them a chance like Arsenal have. It pays off, you know, and you're developing for the future too. That's absolutely right. And you can, I mean, with youth players, you're paying the cost of development and that can pay off in so many different ways, regardless of whether they make the first team and contribute to the first team. Those are players you can sell if you develop them and put the money back into the club as opposed to buying a player like Romelu Lukaku, where you have the huge expenditure up front. And if it doesn't work out, you've tanked his value. Yeah. So, yeah, looking further down the table... Man United in sixth, West Ham in seventh. West Ham's been a good story this year. Do we think anybody else has a chance to to sort of get into the race for those last European places? Top four make Champions League, fifth and sixth make the Europa League, seventh makes the newly, I guess, christened Europa Conference League. Do we think that those seven are sort of locked in right now, or does somebody else have a chance to climb up in there? Yeah, honestly, looking at the table, my opinion is that it's pretty set. You know, there's some teams that have games in hand that can catch up with some points, but um, I don't see our, uh, sorry, West Ham bypassing Man United. I think Man United will finish in sixth place where they are solely because West Ham have been doing fantastic, but they have that uh, Europe, European game still that's, right. that's going to drain the tank a little bit and make it difficult to catch up in the Premier League. Wolves are great, but they're not scoring the goals. They're pretty solid defensively. I think that's one of the reasons they're sitting in eighth in a in a good spot where they could gain points, but I don't think they score enough goals. So I think as we look at it, you know, one through ten is pretty much staying the same. What's been your read on Manchester United this year for all the headlines around that team coming into the year when, of course, bringing Cristiano Ronaldo back to Manchester... They signed Jadon Sancho, which everybody thought was going to be a, a huge move. One of the biggest English stars who wasn't playing in the Premier League. They're sixth right now. Yeah, it's it's difficult to put your finger on. You know, it's like, um, you know, a chef in the kitchen. You need to get the recipes right for it to taste good. And, uh, and Man United need to bring in the right players and have the right 
balance of players in order for them to play the the best style of soccer. And I think I think Ronaldo's getting a lot of unfair criticism because he's he's scored 16 goals in the Premier League. He's a goal scorer. You know, he gets criticism for not being a pressing type player and all of this, but I think that's somewhat unfair, but at the same time it does seem like part of that uh the fall off of the cohesiveness within the team. So I don't know, I can't put my finger on it. I don't want to blame the signing of Ronaldo because he's such a legend and he scored 16 goals. But at the same time, like that seems like part of the issue. I think it is a little bit unfair because as you pointed out, he is the only player scoring goals for United right now. I mean, they, they've struggled to get input from anybody else besides maybe Bruno. Yeah. Uh, but the other reason is, is unfair is because you knew that when you were bringing him in, right? Yeah. Cristiano Ronaldo is, what, 38 now? Yeah. You know he's not going to press. Yeah. You, you have to build the team around him. I mean, he's still good enough to where if you build a team around his strengths and weaknesses, he's still one of the best players in the yeah. world. United sort of haven't done that, and they their system sort of requires the center forward to do a lot of pressing, but you knew that Ronaldo wasn't going to do that. If you watch the tape yep. at any of his last stops, he, he, he just doesn't do that anymore. But he, he's still a great goal scorer, a great player. Um, so I think there have been some errors there. Man United, of course, finally maybe settling on their manager for the future with Eric Ten Hag coming in, replacing, I guess, Ralph Rangnick was sort of a caretaker as they tried to find somebody. That's right, yep. Ten Hag, I mean, what what's his system like? What kind of players is he going to be looking for? Well, you know, I, I don't know if anyone out there that's listening is familiar with the Ajax system, but they, we were just talking about youth, they use their youth a lot. They have a policy of giving a debut to one youth player um, every home game, I think. Um, but they, you know, the importance of playing youth, Ten Hag's going to come in and use some of those young players. And Man United have been historically good at that with bringing through the likes of Beckham scores, but, you know, the class of 97. This year with Elanga, um, I don't, I'm not sure if I'm saying his name correctly, but Hannibal maybe made a debut against Liverpool and was throwing himself around. So yeah. Man United are in a good place with some of their youth players. So I'm excited to see Ten Hag come in and, and adopt some of that and give those guys a chance because that's what made Man United so successful in the past. And they might as well try it because sort of like Chelsea with Romelu Lukaku, a lot of their big money signings have not been productive over the past couple of years, even going back to when they brought Paul Pogba back to Manchester. He's been up and down. You know, Jaden Sancho is starting to pick it up at the end of the season. I think he's going to be just fine there. I think he's going oh, to yeah. be really good. But, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo has had his detractors this season. So why not bring in the youth? And, of course, they have a leg up there because their academy is very good. They have the money to make their academy very good. And if you're a young player, I mean, you want to play for Manchester United. It, it sort of has that cachet. Yeah. You know, Harry Maguire's been receiving a lot of criticism this season too. And, you know, he's an England international. You don't become a bad player overnight. You know, there's something within that team that is breeding a lack of confidence in players like him. Um, you know, so I, I expect Harry Maguire to be fine with a new manager and, and getting the pieces around him, like you mentioned. Varane, who they signed from Madrid, is top quality. That's a great centre-back pairing. I think they need to look at outside backs potentially but backups Luke Shaw and Wan-Bissaka are fantastic 
um, but they need to add some depth there. I'm interested to see how Van der Beek does when he comes back from loan. Because he has because a it seems like that's set up for him Ajax. to succeed now. Yeah, yeah, he he. They brought him in from Ajax. Was he playing there? That's right. Yep. When they brought him in, mm-hmm. and sort of he fell out of favor. I mean, an, an attacking midfielder, really classy player at yeah. Ajax, and he was pivotal in what Ten Hag was doing in his early periods at Ajax. Yeah. So so maybe a piece already there who can be utilized. I want to take a little bit of a digression just talking about coaching here because we talked about Ronaldo and like you talked about with Harry Maguire it's another player where you just have to be so cognizant of his strengths and weaknesses when you're building a team around him he's a great leader very good in the air very solid picking the right pass out of the back you know I saw all this when he was playing for Leicester and I was watching him all the time you don't want him running back towards his own goal because he's you know, he, he's not fast. That That's his weakness. You need to build the team so that he is doing most of his defending in his own box, you know, against aerial balls. When you're coaching, how much do you build the system around the players that you have as opposed to trying to pick the right players to fit into the system that you like to run? Um, it's for for me, and and um, I can probably speak for the majority of strikers coaches too. We're very much focused on the style and the philosophy, um, and trying because we have the luxury of developing these kids from a young age, so we can kind of mold them into the style we want. Um, if I was to step in at a club like Man United right now, like I would be, you know putting the pieces in place to try and be as successful as possible. So it wouldn't be, I wouldn't come in and just implement my style straight away. It, it, that process would take four to five years. And I think that's going to be the thing for Ten Hag. He's going to need to be given time. And I'm not sure he will be. Um, just touching on Maguire there too, like coaching is not easy. And all these little details add up to success or failure. And I think one thing that could potentially have influenced Maguire's performance this year is him being captain. Yeah. Some players take that responsibility and run with it and other players it, it affects in different ways. So I think maybe it was too much responsibility to place on Maguire's shoulders. It's really interesting. He's a guy who's always been tipped sort of as a future captain, even going back to when he was at Hull before Leicester yep. bought him and he was always the guy who was supposed to be the next Leicester captain. Yep. Um, and he's held a big leadership role for England as well. But of course, Manchester United is even different from that. So mm-hmm. that's an interesting thought. Going down the table, I mean, sort of the Premier League is interesting because you have a bunch of these teams in mid-table who don't have a ton to play for, for, you know, the back the, the last 10, 12 games of the season once they sort of get sorted out. Anything interesting you've seen from those, those teams? Uh, Wolves, Newcastle, Leicester... Brighton, Brentford has had a really good season. I mean, do you think they're they're a team that's going to stay in the Premier League for a while? It's always interesting because they're new to the Premier League this year. And what you see often is that the teams like a Brentford that come in and do really well uh, often struggle in their second season. So it'd be it'd be interesting to see how they do next year. Um, hopefully they can keep it going because they're a team that have a philosophy. They have a style of play. They have a coach that's dedicated and consistent with his message. So they play a certain way. And you, regardless of who they play, this is how they play. Um, and I think that breeds success. Now, it's a results-orientated business. Right. So if you don't get the results, you lose your job. Um, but I think that's really the remedy to success. 
what do you think the ceiling is for Newcastle now? Absent any signings that they might make this summer, which they certainly will, but they made they brought in a bunch of players in the winter because they sort of had the new takeover, the new owners, and because they were they were looking at relegation at that point. But they brought in a bunch of quality players in the winter. What do you think of the way the team's made up right now? Yeah, it's interesting. I'm just looking at the table now, and Newcastle, who were down in the bottom when I think when we when we last spoke have like switched places with Aston Villa who yeah. have dropped it's it's crazy um, I'm really excited to see Newcastle bounce up the table you know I lived in the northeast of England for a while I have a lot of friends that are diehard Newcastle fans and I really like to see them succeed it's such a great culture in Newcastle they live and breathe Newcastle United so I'm excited to see what the future holds from them like you mentioned money money breed success too but it's it's not just as simple as that you know we've seen clubs in the Premier League get new owners spend a lot of money and still get relegated you have to get the right recipe that's a good jumping off point to talking about the relegation battle because right now Everton are in 18th are Everton going to go down this year absolutely another example Ah. they've spent a ton of money um, comparable to Liverpool that's right and they're right at the bottom battling relegation um I love Frank Lampard, Chelsea legend. Um, Didn't go well for him as a manager at Chelsea. I felt like he needed more time. Um, But a lot of the criticism he was receiving was from players that felt like he didn't have a true identity and style of play and philosophy and didn't really know his message clear enough. And I'm kind of seeing signs of that at Everton now too. But the players need to take responsibility. They they have not been good enough. And that's why Everton find themselves where they are. So Everton down in 18th. Uh, the bottom three, of course, go down to the championship next year. Everton do have a game in hand on Burnley in 17th. They're two points behind. It really seems like a, a four-team race for three spots down there. I mean, do you think Leeds could get dragged into that as well? Or are, are they safe under... Jesse Marsh, the American. Jesse, he's doing well. Um, you know, he got a lot of criticism when he came in. Of course. You know, Brits are, it's a weird culture there, um, especially with Americans coming in. He got a lot of comparisons to Ted Lasso and, you know, all of that stuff. But he has been a breath of fresh air for the Premier League and and Leeds. You know, I we all love Bielsa. And I wasn't sure Jesse Marsh, Marsh was going to, changed that but he has he's turned it around I think Leeds are safe I think he's doing a great job I uh, love to see Americans in the Premier League whether it's a player or a coach succeed um, I think it's between Everton and Burnley I think uh, and both of them have very similar run-ins with the last few games um, I I have a feeling Everton might just escape by like a point or goal difference or something. Yeah, they they do have that game in hand. That's really that's really big. You're right. Wat, Watford and Norwich City are are down. I mean, their their season's over. They're going back to the championship. How big of a seismic sort of shock would it be to see Everton in the championship? I don't think since I've followed the the Premier League, Everton's always been there. Yeah, same. It, it's very strange that they're even in the position that they are now. They're usually top 10 fighting for European spots. They don't typically achieve that, but that's always their ambition. And with the money they spent, they certainly shouldn't be down there. But um, yeah, I, it's it's a strange one. Like again, how do you put your finger on it? There's a multitude of reasons why they are where they are. 
This is Soccer in Snow and Smoke, the new soccer podcast from ESPN Missoula. I'm Andrew Houghton, and on Soccer in Snow and Smoke, I'll bring you everything you need to know about the beautiful game, from the Montana Grizzlies and local high school programs to the Premier League. Listen to the Footy 15 segment twice a month on Nuanez Now, 4 to 6 p.m. Monday through Friday on 102.9 ESPN Missoula, and find the full show online on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Here's what I wanted to ask you about Frank Lampard as sort of the coaching perspective of it. And and by the way, it's Ross McMoney's joining me, Andrew Houghton, for a Soccer and Snow and Smoke podcast, breaking down everything about the Premier League as we come to the end of the season here. What I wanted to ask you about Lampard and his lack of an identity, which I think you, you correctly pointed out, how much of that goes back to him playing under so many managers at Chelsea under Abramovich? I mean, Roman Abramovich famously quick to get managers out of there regardless of their accomplishments, regardless of their of their trophies. Were those Chelsea teams sort of going back and forth between different tactical systems as, as those managers filtered out of there? And would that affect a player like Frank Lampard who then goes into coaching maybe without a tactical system that he's he's seen for a while? Yeah, you know, I, I if I'm to relate that to my own experience, I, I had you know, many, many coaches that played certain different ways and I played different positions within those styles. It For me, and I didn't even know at the time that I wanted to go into coaching, but I was always going into coaching. I was then picking out the best things that I liked from all of these managers. And I'm sure Frank has done that. I don't necessarily think it's a negative that he had all these different managers. It's probably more of a positive. What I think is the difference... Jose Mourinho worked under Bobby Robson. Pep has worked under managers. Arteta worked under Pep. Klopp's worked under... These these top managers are going on um, a, a journey before they jump in to a top team. And Frank Lampard was kind of doing that at Derby, but still he was the head coach. Like, I think it's very, very important to be, like Arteta did, shadow one of the best. Just Just watch, just take notes, see how they operate. And then eventually, when you're ready, after like five years, then take a big job. Yeah, and there were sort of always whisperings around that, you know, Frank Lampard was jumping into it too quickly because he he went right into it at Derby and then to Chelsea. And that's a, a huge jump. And it's it's got to be, you know, I also wonder if it's more difficult to take mem- mentorship when you're yeah, Frank when, Lampard. When I mean, you're he, a top player, yeah. He's, he's one of the best players in Premier League history. And, you know, he wants to be in charge. He was... A, a huge part of those of those Chelsea teams. I mean, yeah. everybody listened to him, certainly in the locker rooms for those Chelsea teams when he was playing, to go from that to sort of an, an assistant coach where you don't have the be-all, end-all, the final say, I would imagine would be sort of difficult for him as well. You know, I, th- I think just thinking about that, I feel like it's a bit of a cultural thing. Like yeah. English players, English people have more of an ego and like, I need to go prove this and look at all these achievements I did as a player, I'm ready to step in as a manager. Where these European Spanish coaches, they have more of like, I need to learn. You know, I did all this as a player, but player and coach is very different. I'm going to go learn from the best. So I, I think it's a cultural cultural difference too. Speaking of English managers in Derby County, what have you thought of Wayne Rooney, um, who did not manage to keep Derby County from the drop, but I think reviews of him have generally been positive there as a manager yeah they have you know and 
I would have never thought Wayne Rooney would be one to go into management. No. Just just based on how uncomfortable he was in front of the media. You know, he's definitely improved that. He did a documentary, which I really enjoyed recently. But yeah, you know, Wayne Rooney is someone, I think he's way more humble than a Lampard, for example. I think he comes from, you know, a working class background where he's had to fight for everything. I mean, granted, he made his Premier League debut he was when he was 15. Yeah. But still, he comes from a working class background and like his, I'm sure his family have had to fight to to get him to practices when he was a young kid. Um, so I think he has a bit of a different mentality. Um, he's willing to jump in and get his hands dirty and, and do the grunt work and, you know, take the steps that are necessarily necessary to be a good manager. But he obviously has such a reputation that those players under him are willing to run through a brick wall for him. So, Yeah, really interesting situation there with Darby County who, you know, have had money troubles and were, were docked points, um, which is a, a thing that happens in, in English soccer or, or I guess European soccer that I don't think you would ever see in American sports. Imagine the outrage if the New England Patriots were like taken two wins away for the Tom Brady deflate gate scandal or yep. spy gate or something. Or you just imagine the outrage. Um, so while Wayne Rooney managing Derby County didn't manage to save them from relegation, I think he did a lot better than a lot of people thought he was going to. We'll do some lightning rounds here to finish it out. But anything else sort of in the Premier League this year that you wanted to touch on? I think what I'm most excited about is the turnaround of Ten Hag and Man United. You know, I'm not a Man United fan, again. I, I'm i barely a Chelsea fan. Like, Chelsea are my default, but I just love all things soccer. And I, I, love, the, I love the battle for relegation. I love Man City, Arsenal, uh, sorry, Man City, Liverpool. But I'm really excited to see what's next for Man United. Um, there's players leaving, like Pogba's probably played his last game. Um... You know, I'm I'm really interested and hopeful that Ten Hag brings some players from Ajax because they're such so exciting young players. Um, Ryan Gravenbach is one that I'm really excited to see him in the future. He's kind of like the next Pogba, if Pogba really fulfilled his potential. Um, Timber, a right back, is a really young, good player. Um, Anthony, Brazilian, exciting, flair player. I'm really excited to see if he brings some bodies with him. Yeah, that'll be really interesting to watch because Man United is, they have a lot of work to do with that squad. And and a manager really has the chance to shape that team um, and that roster sort of in his own image. Or, yeah. you know, that they have the money. They don't have unlimited money anymore, but they, they have a lot of money. So there will be the chance for, for Eric Ten Hag to bring in some of his players there. And we'll see how long the turnaround takes and how much patience they'll have with him if it takes more than a season. I mean, if they're still fighting oh, for, yeah. for maybe the Europa League spots next year, how quickly is that going to sour for, for Man United and will they have the patience? Engl- English fans are not very patient, but they need to be patient with this process because just changing the manager is not the solution. You need to change the identity of the club. Um, and, and Man United fans... And, and commentators like Gary Neville and Roy Keane, they're so stuck with the old. Like, we need to freshen it up. And I say we, but I'm not a Man United right. fan. Um, it, if it was me, my first signings would be Declan Rice and Harry Kane. Um, Kane's looking for a way out of Spurs. 
Is Man United the option for him? Probably not, because he wants to win immediate trophies. But Well, Man City is not the spot for him anymore yeah. if they sign Erling Haaland, yep, which it seems absolutely. like they're going for. I mean, that was his chance last summer to yep. move to Man City. Yeah, so Man United would be a great option, and what a buy that would be for, for Man United. But those two players would be my first option. If I couldn't get Harry Kane... Um, Darwin Nunes from Benfica is light in Europe on fire right now. He's killing it. The only question I would have there is not many Uruguayan players have had much success at Man United. So, Interesting. You know, the last one, I mean, Cavani's there now. Yeah. He hasn't set the world alight. He's been just fine, but he's not like a regular starter scoring goals. And the other one was Diego Forlan, who Man United fans will remember, but um, he's a very distant memory. And again, wasn't a regular starter. He was more of a backup. So, and Darwin Darwin Nunes is unproven, but he is scoring goals for fun. I think he has twenty five in twenty six in his league, six in ten in the pre, uh, in the in the UEFA Cup. Like he's he's scoring goals. And we've seen just recently Luis Diaz come out of the Portuguese league and and really not miss a step with yeah. Liverpool. Now, Amazing. of course, if he had gone to Man United, maybe would he have hit the ground running quite as yeah. well? I mean, there's a difference in those teams, but you're absolutely right. We'll see what happens with Man United. Let's let's hit a couple lightning round topics here to finish out. It's Ross McMoney's late of Missoula Strikers joining me for a Soccer and Snow and Smoke podcast. Just breaking it down. I mean, I love talking with this guy about soccer because he's even more of a junkie than I am. Watches a, a ton of games. Champions League right now. Real Madrid, Man City in one semifinal. Liverpool and Villarreal in the other semifinal. Your thoughts? Um, what a game yesterday, man. Incredible. Incredible game. What, seven goals? It's nuts. Um, Benzema's on fire. I think Man City get it done. However, just the pressure around that, because Pep needs the Champions League for Man City. He really needs that. Um, so the pressure, the magnitude of that game, considering it's so close, it's at the Bernabeu, there's a risk that Real Madrid. I mean, they're scoring goals for fun too. Get the ball to Benzema, it's going in the net. But I think Man City get it done. And Liverpool, Villarreal, I think Liverpool walk it, honestly. You would have to think that coming into it. Villarreal knocked out Bayern Munich in the in the quarterfinals. Is there an element of them just playing with nothing to lose there? I mean, nobody yeah. expected Villarreal yeah, to be in the semifinals. Absolutely. Does that loosen them up? They Yeah, it will. It, they're playing for, with nothing to lose. They'll get after it. I expect they'll, they'll give it their all against Liverpool. They'll throw throw bodies forward, get the goals. But I think Liverpool are just so good that then, again, they'll just suffocate the team and, and get it done. They're really playing at a level that not a lot of teams in the world can touch right now. Yeah. And I, of course, wouldn't say no to Man City and Liverpool playing in the Champions League final. Oh, yeah. As they decide the Premier League, it would be uh, really storybook, and I think it would be an incredible game. Yeah. So we'll see if that happens. I'm glad you mentioned Kareem Benzema because Colter Nuanez and I talked about this on the radio a little bit last week. Who's the best player in the world right now? Oh, that's a great question. Um, my favorite, and if you watched the first Man City goal yesterday, Kevin De Bruyne. What a special player he is. He can do things with the ball that no one else in the world is doing right now. His movement for the first goal for Man City yesterday was incredible. Then he got the assist for the goal. 
um, or maybe it was the second goal, I can't remember exactly, but he like peeled into a pocket of space, checked to the ball to create space wide, then came back to support it, whipped in a cross goal. Like he is incredible and he makes it so effortless too. So De Bruyne would probably be my first choice, but you know, you have names like Mbappe, um, Luis Diaz coming through, seems exciting. Uh, Gravenberg, who I mentioned, has a very, very high ceiling. Um, I don't know, man. It's a tough choice. Are, are Messi and Ronaldo still in the conversation for you? I feel like just I feel like that it's a a new era now. It's changing uh, the guard. We need to yeah, yeah. to change the guard. Um, if you were to ask me between Messi and Ronaldo, I would choose Ronaldo just because I feel like he's had to work for it a little bit more. Messi just seems like a kid on a school playground that it just comes easy to him. So I appreciate Ronaldo just because I feel like it's he's had to work for it a little harder. Um and just but I mean it's a toss up. It, you know, those guys are unbelievable. And I'm not sure we'll see two players like that that are at the top going about head to head, battling it out for who's best for a long time. Over a decade since yeah. I think since I think anybody else has really been in that conversation. I know Luka Modric won the yeah. Ballon d'Or one year in there, but I th- it's been Messi and Ronaldo one and two or, or two and one. However yeah. you want to organize. And, and them. you mentioned Holland. Holland could be the guy that's next. Holland and Mbappe are the two guys coming up. I think Benzema's on the biggest scoring heater of his yeah. life. Unbelievable finishes right now. I mean, the Panenka in, in oh man <laughs> down four yeah. two in the Champions League semifinal. Going to the penalty spot after he missed two penalties in the league last weekend. Chips it right down the middle. Unbelievable. I think Robert Lewandowski's still there, and he's been the guy who's been sort of number three yeah. behind Messi and Ronaldo the last couple of years. It's a really interesting discussion for that includes more than two names for the first time in a long time. So, yeah, you know, that penalty, people that don't play the game might not understand what that Because it looks so simple. Takes. It looks so simple, but... Like even to do that in a practice game with your buddies and you're messing around is difficult. But on that stage with that much on the line, you've already missed two previously. Man, bravery, composure, you name it. It's it's unbelievable. It's really been interesting to see him come from sort of under the shadow of Cristiano Ronaldo at Real Madrid yeah. because he was always the, the second or third guy there. Um, but a, a really interesting question and, and one to follow. Moving on. Two of the biggest crowds in, in world soccer this year have been for, for Barcelona women's games at the Camp Now. Is this a breakthrough for the women's game in Europe? What have you, what have you thought about the women's game recently? Uh, I, I don't know if I mentioned it last time, but England especially, but Europe on a whole have, have been really heavily investing in women's soccer for the last four or five years at least. But they're really pushing continuously to make those improvements and it's of real importance right now and and you know it's paying off clearly so I'm excited like it's time it's been time like let's get this going yeah so some 91,000 fans went to those games for the Barcelona women and it doesn't hurt that the Barcelona women are basically the death star right now I don't think they've lost in in (laughs) 40 some games I mean they're really They have several of the best players in the world. I mean, probably six or seven of the top 10 or 12 best players in the world on the women's side. Um, it's an incredible side, and it's you're really seeing the enthusiasm grow there. It's, it's interesting to watch sort of Europe catch up to the United States on this side of the game, right? Because women's soccer in America has always sort of been a phenomenon dating back to the 90s World Cup teams and Mia Hamm and Brandi Chastain and players like that. It's always sort of 
felt like a bigger thing here than over over in Europe. But I guess that's yeah. that's switching. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, one of the reasons I came to the states was because I want to be involved in the women's game, and 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 uh, the states is the shining light of that. You know, um, even now, I think the women's game has a higher viewership than the MLS. Um, so yeah, it, America have been leading the way. I think they still are, but Europe is definitely catching up. And that's a good thing good. to see. Talking about American soccer, U.S. men qualified for the World Cup relatively easily, although I think there was a lot of stress. There was always going to be a lot of stress around that qualifying campaign after 2018. What's the ceiling for that team at the World Cup? Or just, what have you thought of the U.S. men throughout that World Cup qualifying campaign? Um, again, I don't really see a true identity. Interesting, because that was what Greg Berhalter was supposed to provide. Yeah. Coming coming in after sort of the Klinsman experiment failed. Yeah. And I started to see, I felt like I started to see that with Klinsman and then, and then firing him, it felt like a step backwards. And now hopefully they're making some progress and trying to clarify that. But as soon as you rip it up and you have to start again, it takes time. It really does. Um, I learned that when I took over Missoula Strikers seven years ago. I thought I was going to come in and do this, this, and this, and change things overnight. And it took about four years for me to finally feel like I had put a bit of a stamp on the club. This this stuff, especially at that level, takes a lot, a lot of effort, a lot of time, a lot of buy-in from everybody around you to, to start going in the right direction. So I think it's going to take still a little bit of time for the States, but um, I think hopefully they have the right guy to to make those moves. What's the biggest obstacle for you there as you're trying to imprint your system on on a club or a team? Is it tactically, culturally? Is it in, in getting the players to do it? Or is it with dealing with, with other people in the club? Uh, I, th- I think it's uh, culturally. I think, you know, it's kind of, it's. Uh, I think it's easier as a Brit coming in the, to the States and people like, oh, he has an accent. He must know what he's talking about. Um, but for Ten Hag, for example, coming into Man United, it's going to be very difficult to change that culture because all of the fans have an opinion. Everyone's an expert. He makes one decision, like, you know, takes Ronaldo out of the team. Half the club hates him. Half the club's like, yeah, that's a that's what needs to happen. So you can't win. But I think in order to make change, you really have to have conviction in your ideals, your values and and hopefully you're able to convince people to to buy in and jump on your you know on your bandwagon and and start going in the right direction and sticking with it when things go bad right yeah yeah, absolutely you know not everyone's going to agree but you have to have thick skin and you know believe in what you do and and keep at it it's a grind very interesting thoughts from ross mcmoney's joining me here on soccer and snow and smoke the soccer podcast from espn missoula Russ, I've kept you in here for a while now. You showed up perfectly on time at 11. We're past noon now. Thank you so much for your time. Anything else that no, you man, wanted I'm to hit on before we got out of here? Happy to keep going for another hour if you want. <laughs> Me too. I, I love mean, it. I could yeah. do this all day long. Thanks to Ross for coming in late of Missoula Strikers. Now just sort of seeing what's the next step on the road for him. Good luck with that, man, and we'll be in touch. I, I loved it as well, so we'll inevitably have you back in here talking soccer. Yeah, if there's anyone at Man United that's listening, I yeah, I'm happy to 
deal with your transfer <laughs> policy and bring in the players and that would that would be a great job or Ajax man I, that's my dream job if, if yeah. they need a replacement for Ten Hag I'm, I'm available and that job is open now <laughs> so throw your resume out there that's Ross McMoney's on the Soccer and Snow and Smoke podcast I'm Andrew Houghton thanks for listening <laughs>